NetCredit is here to say yes, because you're more than a credit score. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Application subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partners. NetCredit. Credit to the people. It was July 16, 1973, and 21-year-old Conchetta Penny Sarah had the day off from her job as a dental assistant at a practice in downtown New Haven, Connecticut. She argued with her little sister over who would get the keys to the family's Buick that day, and won, driving away from the home she shared with her father and sibling late that summer morning. Penny made it to the Temple Street parking garage adjacent to Mally's department store just before 12.45 p.m. She told her father earlier that day that she planned to do some furniture shopping. But before she ever stepped foot outside of the garage, Penny came face to face with evil in a senseless attack that claimed her young, promising life. Despite the abundant evidence left at the scene by the perpetrator and considerable public speculation concerning one suspect in particular, more than a decade would pass before New Haven police were able to make an arrest. But was their case against the man they identified as Penny Sarah's killer built on solid ground? One critical detail would derail everything and the investigation started all over again. When Penny Sarah's murder finally made it to trial 29 years later, the judge would call it one of the most mysterious murder cases in New Haven's history. The mystery would reach a conclusion, but not without a figurative roller coaster of false arrests, cover-up allegations, elaborate reenactments, and eventual advancements in forensic science to finally put the case of Penny Sarah to rest. I'm Kylie Lowe, and this is part one of Conchetta Penny Sarah's story on Dark Down East. Conchetta Penny Sarah was born in New Haven, Connecticut on March 2, 1952, to her Italian-American parents, John and Pauline Sarah. John Sarah spoke warmly about his daughter, telling Helen Bennett Harvey of the New Haven Register, quote, All the people who knew Penny loved her. She was beautiful, she was funny, all of her girlfriends loved her, she was fantastic." End quote. Penny had to grow up fast, and she assumed the homemaker and mothering role for her family when her mom Pauline passed away in 1963. She was only 11 years old at the time, but Penny took care of her little sister Rosemary and even cooked dinner for her father so he'd have a warm meal to eat after a long day working at his auto repair shop. I learned a lot about Penny and her life from a book by Henry C. Lee, one of the world's most renowned forensic scientists who worked on such infamous cases such as John Benet Ramsey, Lacey Peterson, and Helly Crafts. Henry Lee also worked on Penny Sarah's case. In his book, Cracking More Cases, The Forensic Science of Solving Crimes, Lee examines Penny Sarah's case alongside four other homicides through the lens of advancements in forensic technology that finally revealed long-sought answers. Henry C. Lee became the director of the Connecticut State Police Forensic Science Laboratory in 1979, four years after the initial investigation into Penny Sarah's murder began. However, he held the position for over 25 years and played a role in the renewed investigation in the late 80s and early 90s. He has first-hand knowledge of the intimate, behind-the-scenes details of the investigation. I'll link his book in the description of this episode for you. It's available in free digital format via archive.org. Henry Lee wrote that Penny, along with taking care of her sister 
and managing the Sarah household in her mother's place, also learned to manage her father's business and assisted with his bookkeeping. She was smart, sharp, and wise beyond her years. It was what the circumstances of her life demanded. But she was still a kid, too. At Wilbur Cross High School, Penny sat on the prom committee for her junior and senior year. In the 1971 yearbook, she listed her future plans simply as college, but those plans were delayed, at least temporarily, in favor of earning some money. In 1973, 21-year-old Penny worked as a dental assistant at an office on Chapel Street in New Haven. For a time, Penny was engaged to a man named Philip DeLietto. Phil worked at his family's luncheonette about a mile away from the dental office where Penny worked. According to Henry Lee's book, Philip was distantly related to the New Haven police chief at the time, Biagio Ben DiLietto, but his name was spelled D-I instead of D-E, like Phil's last name. That familial connection, however distant, would later be a point of contention in a long-lasting investigation. But despite their engagement, Phil and Penny's relationship was plagued by arguments and disagreements. Penny was the one to call off their engagement, but the former couple stayed close. They still made plans and spent time together right up until the day Penny was killed. It was July 16, 1973, and Penny had taken the day off. Though some 21-year-olds might use a free, hot, and humid summer day to hit the beach or hang out with friends, Penny wanted to run some errands and pay some bills and then maybe stop by Phil's family restaurant to say hi. She'd need to borrow her dad's car to get around that day, but her sister Rosemary tried to call dibs on the 1971 two-door blue Buick Electra 225 first. Penny had seniority, though, so little sis surrendered the keys, and Penny left the house by 11 a.m. that morning. Her first stop that day was to her father's auto shop, where she got caught up on the bookkeeping, and visited for a few minutes before carrying on with her to-do list. Penny told her dad she planned to do some furniture shopping at Edward Malley's department store, and left his shop by 11.30 a.m. Where she went and who she saw during the next 75 minutes is still unknown. But by 12.42 p.m., Penny had pulled into the Temple Street parking garage through the frontage street entrance and parked her car on the ninth floor. By 1 p.m., Penny Sarah was dead. She never made it out of the parking garage alive. A parking garage attendant making his rounds on that July afternoon found her lying at the base of a corner stairwell on the 10th floor of the parking structure. Her shoes were gone, and the soles of her feet were blackened as if she'd been walking or running barefoot. Her blue dress was soaked with blood, and it was clear to the attendant that the woman was dead. He quickly made for the phone to call police. As he waited for the sirens to climb the several levels up to where the woman lay, the attendant descended from the 10th to the 9th floor, where he found what he believed was a brown wig. It was among the first pieces of evidence collected and tagged in the case. Lee detailed in his book the extensive evidence collected from the parking garage and from the Sarah family Buick itself. The car Penny borrowed from her father that morning was parked at a strange angle on the 8th level of the garage and the driver's side front door handle had what appeared to be blood on it. Inside the car, crime scene technicians found a pair of women's shoes and a purse with a wallet containing about $15, as well as a Connecticut driver's license belonging to Conchetta Sarah. 
The backseat of the car had more blood-like stains on the carpeting. There was a tissue box tossed haphazardly onto the floor behind the passenger seat with what looked like a bloody fingerprint on it. Investigators collected and bagged this tissue box, as well as some sort of colored rag found in the back seat next to it. In addition to what appeared to be blood on and inside the car, investigators dusted for fingerprints, collecting dozens of latent prints for later comparison. Among the other evidence collected from inside the vehicle were a few invoices for a male patient at the dental office where Penny worked. Outside of the car, a trail of what appeared to be blood was beginning to tell the story for investigators trying to make sense of what happened. The trail of droplets looked like it followed a path from the car to a stairwell that connected the 9th and 10th floors of the garage. On the 7th floor, investigators found a set of car keys on a white key holder, and not far from the keys, they collected a white handkerchief, wet with what was believed to be blood. The blood-like trail of droplets extended as far as the stairwell landing on level 5B. Side note, you've heard me refer to the reddish stains on the car, the tissue box, and other pieces of evidence as what appeared to be blood and what was believed to be blood and blood-like, because in terms of homicide investigations, nothing can be assumed or confirmed until forensic science proves that the red stains were, in fact, human blood. Anyway, as technicians carefully collected the ample evidence in and around the Buick and the garage, detectives simultaneously canvassed the immediate area for potential witnesses. Lee stated in his book that the ticket booth agent working in the Temple Street garage that afternoon told investigators that a man leaving the garage had handed him a wet parking ticket. It looked like it could have had blood on it, the agent said. He reported that the man with the wet ticket sounded like he maybe had a foreign accent and was a young white man, but not a kid, with long dark hair and a thin build. As the man pulled out of the garage, he seemed to be in a hurry and drove over the sidewalk as he sped away. Unfortunately, the agent couldn't recall any concrete details about that vehicle, just that it was a dark colored sedan. Detectives also spoke to an employee from Mally's department store which was attached to the Temple Street parking structure. He told police that he and two other employees were taking their lunch break in the garage when they saw a dark-haired man with a mustache running after a woman through the garage. Detectives made note of his description of the man, which varied slightly from the description given by the ticket booth agent, who hadn't mentioned a mustache. The circumstances of the homicide, in broad daylight, in a public space, were alarming. But the evidence seemed ample. Investigators worked diligently to make sense of the scene, but they couldn't have known their early efforts and careful evidence collection wouldn't pay off until almost three decades later. Do you want to set your child up for success and help them learn too? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S., and there's one site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Kids can even access IXL on the go through the app on your phone or tablet. No more trying to figure out how to explain math equations or grammar rules yourself. IXL has built-in explanation videos. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now, and Dark Down East listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership 
when they sign up today at IXL.com slash Downeast. Visit IXL.com slash Downeast to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. As a Dark Downeast listener, you know the world can be an unpredictable place. But with every case, we've learned one thing. Your vigilance and preparation can be your greatest defense. That's why you should invest in Simply Safe Home Security today. Simply Safe is whole home protection with sensors to detect break-ins, fires, floods, and more. But the piece I appreciate the most is the line of indoor and outdoor cameras so I can have eyes everywhere, even when I'm away. How many stories have we heard about investigations stalling out because a location didn't have cameras or the cameras just weren't working that day? Of course, I hope I never have to rely on my cameras for that kind of info. But knowing they're there, watching who's coming and going at my house, both the invited and uninvited guests, gives me a sense of security I hadn't had in my own home before. Simply Safe has given me and many of my listeners real peace of mind, and I want you to have it too. Get 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for Fast Protect monitoring. Just visit simplysafe.com/downeast. That's simplysafe.com/downeast. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Penny Sarah's body was transported from the stairwell to Yale New Haven Hospital where an autopsy was immediately performed. According to Lee's book, the pathologist determined that Penny died as the result of catastrophic internal bleeding following a single stab wound by a thin, sharp instrument that pierced her right ventricle. The doctor would later tell police that according to his estimations, the murder weapon was one and an eighth inch in width with a minimum length of three inches. It was unclear if the object had a serrated edge. No object matching this description was found at the scene. Meanwhile, the evidence was being processed in the Connecticut Crime Laboratory, and detectives were following up with witnesses. All the blood-like smudges, droplets, and spatters found on, in, and around the car and other pieces of evidence were determined by the toxicology laboratory at the Hartford Health Department to be human blood, a mixture of type A and type O. Penny had type A blood, and so the type O blood at the scene was assumed to belong to her killer. However, both blood types are very common. Nearly 38% of the U.S. population is believed to have type O, so it certainly wasn't enough to narrow down the suspect pool without more information. In addition to testing on the blood evidence, the fingerprints lifted from the car were compared to known people who may have had access to the family Buick. Nearly all of the latent fingerprints, that is, fingerprints that can't be seen with the naked eye, collected from the vehicle Penny was driving that day, were found to belong to Penny or her family, except for the bloody smudges on the tissue box in the backseat of the car. Those prints didn't match a single person from Penny's family. It was possible they belonged to the suspect. The prints were sent to the Connecticut State Police Identification Unit for further manual comparison to a fingerprint databank as well as the FBI's Fingerprint Identification Division. It would be a time-intensive task. Automated systems for fingerprint comparison wouldn't exist for several more years. Even after extensive review, though, no matches were found. Police did have a few leads to follow, though. Witness statements and interviews with those who knew Penny best pointed the case in a few directions, beginning with Penny's ex-fiance. Of all the motives police had to consider, none made any sense. 
It was broad daylight in a public place when Penny was attacked. Her assailant didn't steal her wallet or her jewelry. And though the car was believed to have been driven by the killer from the ninth floor down to the eighth floor where it was ditched, it didn't seem like any real attempt was made to steal the car. The autopsy showed no evidence of sexual assault either. So what was the point of such a brazen attack? A crime of passion made sense on some level. If no other theory fit the circumstances, could it be a scorned lover? Penny's former fiancé, Philip DiLieto, was among the first to land on the suspect list. According to Henry Lee's book, police executed a search warrant at Philip's home in East Haven. Investigators found a pair of broken scissors stained with a reddish-brown substance that later tested positive as human blood. Could the scissors have been the murder weapon? Delietta was cooperative with the investigation and agreed to appear in a lineup at police headquarters. One of the eyewitnesses, the employee on a lunch break who said he saw a woman running away from a man in the parking garage, was brought in to view the lineup. As he entered the police station, police inadvertently led the witness past Philip DiLieto. The witness and Phil bumped shoulders and exchanged glances. The witness later picked Philip DiLieto out of the lineup, identifying him as the man chasing the woman in the parking garage. Even before he was picked out of the lineup, though, police had strong reason to suspect Philip DiLieto for Penny's murder. Their on-again, off-again relationship was rocky, and Penny had plans to see him that day. But Philip did have a solid alibi. He'd been working at his family's luncheonette. His immediate family members vouched that Phil had been there the whole time, and customers verified those statements, saying that they'd seen Phil at the restaurant too. Though one witness later modified his statement, noting a 20-minute period when he didn't see Phil behind the counter. But it wasn't enough to invalidate the alibi. The parking garage was far enough away that the timeline wouldn't have worked out. What's more, Phil's fingerprints were compared to the bloody smudge left on the tissue box inside the car, but it wasn't a match. Police may have moved past Penny's ex-fiance as a suspect early on in the investigation, but Philip DiLieto's name was still tossed around in public conversation for the duration of the case. The greater New Haven community seemed convinced that Philip DiLieto was the perpetrator and that justice had failed to fall on his head because of a rumored cover-up by the police chief who, you'll remember, was Phil's distant relative. It didn't matter to the accusatory public that he had an airtight alibi and none of the evidence, not even fingerprints, pointed to Phil. He made sense as the killer to a nervous population that wanted their sense of safety back. Behind closed doors, the investigation moved forward in search of other possible suspects. Lee wrote in Cracking More Cases that a team of four detectives, in addition to New Haven PD's Nicholas Pastor, who led the team, had a hunch about the colored rag they found on the floor of the back seat in the car. After further inspection, investigators determined it was a rag similar to those used by mechanics. That one clue directed the team to execute a massive canvassing effort. They'd interview all the owners and managers of all the gas stations and auto repair shops in New Haven County to see if they could locate the rag's owner. Whether they completed that effort, which would have meant visiting over 2,500 different shops and gas stations, according to Lee, and whether it provided any meaningful information is unclear. Several months after Penny's death, police still had yet to make an arrest. John Sarah, Penny's heartbroken father, grew frustrated with the lack of progress. 
he decided to launch his own campaign to find his daughter's killer, one that would cost him tens of thousands of dollars over the remainder of his life. His first step was taking out ads in the New Haven Register newspaper. A typical ad was just a few inches of valuable black and white space with a photo of Penny Sarah on the left and a few lines of text on the right. It read, Penny Sarah, murdered in Temple Street Garage, downtown New Haven, on July 16, 1973, daytime. To date, killer still in New Haven area. That last bit, about the killer still being in the area, was in all caps, but it hadn't been proven true by the investigation. Not yet. Later on, John Sarah would sue the parking garage for negligence. According to Nicole Simmons, reporting for the New York Times, the Temple Street garage had two security guards, but at the time Penny was killed, they were both across the street on a coffee break. John Sarah was eventually awarded damages of $200,000. Christy Vaughn reported for the Hartford Current that John checked in with police almost daily, whether it was stopping by to talk to detectives face-to-face or calling them up to remind investigators he was still there still waiting for his daughter's murder case to find a break. He personally offered a reward of $30,000 for information leading to the arrest of his daughter's killer. He hired a private detective and even consulted psychics. John drove to the scene of the crime himself, spent hours driving laps around New Haven looking for people with a bandage on their wrist or a scar on their hands because, according to reporting by Nicole Simmons for the New York Times, Police believed that whoever killed Penny had injured themselves in the attack, possibly slicing their wrist near their hand. Penny's little sister Rosemary later described her father's state of mind as living in a nightmare. But despite efforts by police and by John Sarah himself, the case went cold. Eleven years passed before a big break came. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. In July of 1984, almost 11 years to the day of Conchetta Penny Sarah's murder, New Haven police announced the arrest of 33-year-old Anthony Galino on homicide charges. In a 12-page affidavit submitted to obtain the arrest warrant, police revealed that Galino had actually been on their radar since the start of the investigation when he was among the hundreds of family, friends, and acquaintances interviewed for the case. But two years later, in December of 1975, Galino became an actual suspect when his then-wife told police that Galino allegedly beat her and threatened to do the same thing to her as he had done to Penny down in the garage in New Haven. 
The affidavit went on to state that Galino told police during an April 1980 interview that he'd been introduced to Penny by a mutual friend. A month later, in a separate interview, he said he actually didn't know Penny that well and had only seen her when they were both students at Wilbur Cross High School. Henry Lee wrote in his book that witnesses told police they saw Penny and Anthony Galino together on more than one occasion during the summer of 1973, including once at a club having drinks and another time arguing on the street. However, no other sources I encountered mentioned these details. But the affidavit does make clear that Anthony Galino and Penny knew each other on some level. In the affidavit, Anthony Galino's car was said to have matched the rough description of the vehicle seen leaving the Temple Street garage on July 16, 1973. The affidavit also stated that Galino had a scar on his left hand, but couldn't tell police how he got it. Lee writes that Anthony Galino told detectives during an extensive line of questioning that he believed his blood type was O, the second blood type believed to belong to the killer that they found on the car and all over the parking garage. Investigators did not take a blood sample or confirm Galino's blood type at the time, though. New Haven police did not comment on why it took so long to arrest Galino if he'd been on the list of suspects for so long. They'd only say, that the affidavit didn't contain the entire case. More of the evidence and the case against Galino would be presented to a judge and jury at trial. Meanwhile, the public was celebrating an arrest made in a homicide case that had haunted the New Haven area for over a decade. And Penny's father, John Sarah, had already found a degree of peace, knowing that the investigation had finally reached the point of identifying and apprehending a suspect. Quoted in the New York Times, John Sarah said, it's over, and now Penny is at rest. Now she'll lie in peace. End quote. Golino's defense attorney, a public defender named Hugh Keefe, made the state's case difficult from day one, filing a motion that argued his client couldn't be charged or tried for murder because the statute of limitations had expired. Yeah, apparently in 1973 in Connecticut, there was a five year statute of limitations for homicide, and since that's when the crime occurred, his attorney argued that he was subject to those terms. Keefe also argued that Galino didn't have a motive for the killing, and not to mention, none of the evidence at the scene indicated Galino was responsible for the murder, only that he possibly had the same blood type as a second person who bled on the scene. Galino also didn't match the witness description of the man chasing Penny through the garage. Galino posted bail while the defense motions worked their way through Superior Court. Several months later, in November of 1984, a Superior Court judge ruled that Anthony Galino could be tried for the murder of Penny Sarah, and that the five-year statute of limitations argument did not apply. In a complicated decision, Judge Kinney Jr. ruled that the five-year statute of limitations for felonies did not apply to crimes punishable by death. Although the death penalty was ruled unconstitutional in Connecticut as of 1972, Murder was still classified as a crime punishable by death, even when that penalty was taken off the table. The judge's decision reads almost like a riddle, but that was that. The decision by Judge Kinney Jr., though, was sent all the way up to the Supreme Court of Connecticut for consideration, which delayed the case for two years. Ultimately, the state Supreme Court sided with the Superior Court decision, and finally made way for Anthony Galino to face the murder charges at trial in spring of 1987. But as it turns out, 
that trial would never come to pass. The state's case against Anthony Galino would fall apart in a big way the very night before proceedings were scheduled to begin. Defense attorney Hugh Keefe continued to file motions in the case, calling into question the evidence that the state of Connecticut had against Anthony Galino. In May of 1987, lead prosecutor on the case Mary Galvin requested a blood typing test for Galino as part of one of the defense objections. An Associated Press report in the Hartford Current stated that the test came back showing that Galino's blood was type A, not type O, as he had previously told investigators. Type A matched Penny Sarah's blood type, which was obviously found at the scene, but the other blood evidence was type O, which detectives presumed to belong to her killer. Testing the suspect's blood for a match to the evidence at the scene seems like a basic, step one kind of thing. So why didn't investigators do it in the first place and save literal years of time and energy? Well, according to the Hartford Current, the prosecution team wanted to officially obtain Anthony Galino's blood type, but thanks to the ongoing Superior and Supreme Court challenges over the charges, they were blocked from doing so as everything played out. With this new information, Hugh Keefe asked for a dismissal of the charges against his client based on the blood type, and was successful. Keefe told the press at the time, quote, It was the flimsiest of the cases they've ever brought. The New Haven Police Department and the New Haven State's Attorney and everyone connected to this arrest ought to be ashamed of themselves. End quote. Anthony Galino was free from the charges, maybe. But he was not unmarred by the ordeal. The damage to his reputation was done, and he never fully recovered. Nick Povinelli of the New Haven Register spoke with Anthony Galino in 1989. He was 38 years old at the time, but living under the cloud of the since-dropped murder charges had taken a toll on his health. He lost 60 pounds, and he'd collapsed at work and had to be taken to the hospital. His ex-wife had kept their son from him, and his family members cut all ties. Quote, Every place I go, and I don't go too many places, every place I go, people are still reminding me of the case. People still avoid me for whatever reason. I see people I've known for most of my life just walk away when they see me. End quote. Though the public still questioned whether or not he was the guy who carried out the heinous attack on a bright, beautiful young woman on that July afternoon of 1973, and though remaining in New Haven meant catching the suspicious glances of strangers who recognized his face from all over the media coverage, Anthony Galino had no plans to leave the area. He told Nick Povinelli, quote, I have nothing to be ashamed of. I've never been one to duck anybody or any problem, so I have no reason to escape to another part of the country. I was born and raised here. I've stood on my feet throughout all of this, and I feel like I can continue as long as my health holds up, end quote. He pursued a false arrest lawsuit against the city of New Haven to the tune of $40 million, but was unsuccessful. It was back to the drawing board for the Penny Sarah investigation, but this time the public pressure and scrutiny on investigators had increased tenfold. They'd botched the investigation, people said, arresting an innocent man and holding up the case for years while Penny's real murderer was still out there. Penny's father continued to take out advertisements in the local newspaper after Anthony Galino was released from the charges. He hoped the clipping would reach someone with information, 
about who stole his daughter's life. And John continued to apply pressure to investigators, too. In fact, due in large part to John Sarah's requests and a letter he sent to the chief state's attorney, John J. Kelly, in 1987, the case would ultimately change hands and the investigation would be reinvigorated in a big way. In the next episode of Dark Down East. In the decade after the state's primary suspect, Anthony Galino, was cleared of all charges, the case would change departments from the local level at New Haven Police to the state's attorney's office. Over 15 years after Penny Sarah was killed, a reinvigorated investigation utilizing advancements in fingerprint technology pointed to a new suspect, someone who had never been on the case radar before. Penny Sarah's story continues on Dark Down East. Follow now wherever you're listening, wherever you like to get your podcasts, so you're the first to hear how this case concludes. Thank you for listening to Dark Down East. Sources cited and referenced for this episode are listed at darkdowneast.com. Please follow Dark Down East on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And if you could, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. I love to hear what you think of the show and what you want to hear next, and reviews are really the best way to support this show and the cases I cover. If you have a personal connection to a case and you want me to cover it on this podcast, please contact me at hello at darkdowneast.com. Thank you for supporting this show and allowing me to do what I do. I'm honored to use this platform for the families and friends who have lost their loved ones, and for those who are still searching for answers in cold missing persons and homicide cases. I'm not about to let those names or their stories get lost with time. I'm Kylie Lowe, and this is Dark Down East. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow.